Today's show is sponsored, of course, by our presenting sponsor, Cufflinks.com. One year sponsoring the DVR Podcast Network. We love you, Cufflinks. And it's Black Friday today, baby. You can save 20% off site-wide. Use code BLACKFRIDAY. Also, free shipping on orders over $100. Look good when you step out in the morning. Make an impression. Go to cufflinks.com slash DVR today. They've got so many awesome products, whether you're a geek or you're just trying to look good. Go to cufflinks.com today, use code BLACKFRIDAY, and get free shipping on orders over $100, also 20% off site-wide. Cufflinks.com. Do it. Welcome back to Daily DVR Does Watchmen. My name is Axel, and my co-host today and every Friday is Roberto Suarez. Hello, Roberto. Hello. Happy Thanksgiving, or belated Thanksgiving to all. (laughs) Yes. Did you have a good day? I did. I'm uh, still recovering from overeating, but I'm doing okay. Yes, me too. My son (laughs) and I are both recovering. Uh, He is waiting for me to finish the podcast so I can watch the new Mandalorian episode with him. Oh, that's right. We got Mandalorian. We got the, my older son wants to watch Irishman and I'm like, okay, we need three and a half hours for that. Oh, I know. I know. So much content. That is like, actually, I hear that people are saying um, that they're just treating it like a series and watching it like an hour or half hour segments. Mm-hmm. That is uh, that that's long, but Marty. It's funny because I read the I read the book that the Irishman is based on, and I I consumed that book in a matter of like two days. So it was a very fast read. So when I hear that it's only a three and a half hour movie, it's like, well, yeah, I mean that, that that's that's pretty decent for a for a book that only took a couple of days to read. But oh well, there you go. I can't wait to see it, man. But we yeah. got to talk about some Watchmen today. Today we we're going to be. Diving deeper into and reading some feedback about Watchmen Season 1, Episode 6, entitled This Extraordinary Being. Now, remember, you can send us feedback at dvrpodcast at gmail.com and also check out dvrpodcast.com. Thanks to Flip Everest for the very kind iTunes review. Keep them going. I've set a goal of 50 reviews. We're at 36. We've got three weeks to go. Actually, we're at 37. I just checked. We're doing better, and the notes already have improved. So uh, give us some iTunes reviews. It does help get the word out. Please join our Patreon as well. We've got a goal of 30 patrons, and with Tay, John, and Elena recently joining, we're at 26. So let's get four more. Let's hit those goals, get the pod going. We appreciate it. Give that to us. We're giving this to you, and we're going to start off with some news. All right, let's get into it. First off. This week, there was the second of three official podcasts. Now, remember, they're basically just dropping them after every three episodes. And uh, did you get a chance to hear this one this week? I have not, but I've been kind of following what you've been covering about them. Yes, this is this was a really fun pod. I listened to this last night while I was playing a little uh, Luigi's Mansion. And um, Damon really gets into it here, and they go kind of through the last three episodes that we've just watched. And more importantly, they talk about the details, but also Damon talks about kind of like the the behind-the-scenes stuff, what they were thinking and talking about and discussing in the writer's room. Um, And he makes some notes in there, which we haven't really talked too much about, which is the actual staff 
of the show, the directors and the writers, mm-hmm. which besides Damon are primarily people of color or women. And he really went out and found a staff and, and through people he had worked with too, like Stephen Williams, who directed this episode, but bringing on some new people that he had not worked with previously, but even through other HBO shows and how important it was for him to have that representation on the staff, but that also the show reflect how representation in media such as with the Bass Reeves film, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And throughout the American Hero story, how that kind of perverts the story, how important that was to him as a person growing up and how he thinks that is really important in society. So it's interesting to hear with a show that has been, you know, somewhat controversial, right? People have opinions on it. Uh, It's interesting to hear right from the horse's mouth about how these things were important to him and he took it seriously. And it was just a great, it's a great listen. He, he's, he's the man. I wish they were doing one for every episode, but this was a, this one in particular, I felt the last one, they kind of introduced everything, but here they were really diving a lot deeper into his motivations. Yeah, and that's something that uh, you know Hollywood has been criticized on in the past is that you know you do a good game of of telling stories that uh, deal with these difficult topics, but then behind the scenes, what are you truly doing to help improve, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the situation that we have in, in the Hollywood industry where we are still a predominantly white, white male dominated industry. Um, and granted it is becoming, you know, with, with, uh, People like Damon and you see other uh, other companies, even like Marvel, for example, taking on more female directors and more uh, directors representative of uh, other uh, cultural groups. Um, but th- there's that reality. And then there's the reality of who is actually behind the scenes with the f- when you look at executive producers and producers and that side of Hollywood, that is still very much a predominantly uh, white dominated industry. Uh, oh. So there's still a ways to go, but it's it's good to see uh, Damon and many others, at least on the more creative side, uh, taking steps to uh, create a more balanced and more uh, more uh, uh, inclusive uh, industry. Yeah, man, and it's definitely. I like the way you know. I've always felt. I mean, I've obviously I love Lost, and I've always felt a connection. Damon and I, we both grew up in Jersey. I think in very similar towns uh, and very similar experiences. I'm a white Irish dude. He's a white Jewish dude, but our towns were kind of close to each other. And I think that the experience that he describes of representation how that was important to him, you know, and yeah. as a person, and I can say that as a white guy growing up in an area that was diverse, but I was very able to have only white friends, you know, sure. in a white neighborhood at a, at a mostly white school mm-hmm. and having, having media and books, especially and comic books teach me, and show me that there are other experiences and how very important that is to not only on his side, but how he realizes that he's providing in a sense, uh, a way for other people 
to gain entry into this discussion, you know, and these experiences. So I was kind of really touched by it. And that's Mm -hmm. the thing is that for a show that is, has a million clickbait articles and people yelling on the internet or whatever, when the creator comes on and just speaks honestly, like a human being, uh, for a podcast, it really kind of touched me. And I was listening to it last night and I had to just, some, I was just kind of pausing and listening. I'm like, man, you know, I'm really glad that I spend five hours a week talking about this show. <laughs> like, yeah. This guy, like, he's really, he realizes that in the same way, how important it was for Will to see Bass Reeves on the screen while there's a freaking race massacre happening outside. Mm-hmm. You know, it's also important for the little white kid like Damon to see a film or read a book or a comic that exposes them and opens them up and lets them see, okay, hey, this is the way the world is. Right. Let's take it. Let's have an honest assessment of it and look at it. And you're a part of it. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was a great podcast. I'll have to check it out. Yeah. So. Ah, Damon. Um, uh, in other news, uh, Marvel artist Clayton Henry worked with colorist Marcelo Maiolo on a comic for that The Atlantic and Watchmen teamed up to make. Um, and it's really interesting. It's about the uh, history of the Tulsa Massacre. And there is actually some uh, professors that contributed as well. And I'm going to include a link in the show notes. Uh, This is an AV Club article, but includes a link to the comic. And I think that's really cool that this is we we had this other piece of news. It's being taught in the Tulsa schools. Um, There was another thing this week about the um, the uh, Nazi rally at Madison Square Garden. That was a real event that's mentioned in the show. Right. And yeah. and people are now waking up to that and looking into that and saying, wow, that happened at Madison Square Garden, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. And we know that in the story, that band was playing at Madison Square Garden. So it's like they made links to that to kind of little place little again, open up our eyes to the true history. So that's kind of cool that they made a comic um, about the Tulsa Massacre. Things kind of go in a loop, you know, like – they got it. They in the in the comic they had the Black Freighter comic in the show they have the show within the show and now they made a comic about a real thing that happened because it was in a TV show about a comic. All right, moving on. <laughs> yeah, it, well, I mean, it's an interesting piece about how you know there were people who thought that the the depiction of the Tulsa massacre in the show was fiction. Yeah, uh, and so so then you have folks who are you know, being exposed to this truth for the first time through a property that was born out of a comic book. And now this exposure has put this this story really, you know, uh, giving it a lot more exposure than it ha- has ever gotten before. And that it, it, it in and of itself then inspires the creation of a comic book to help continue making it accessible and making it something that others will hopefully uh, be be compelled to read and learn more about. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, another piece uh, in The Hollywood Reporter, this was sent in by James. Thank you, James. And it's an interview with the actor Jovan Adepo, who played the young Will Reeves, uh, mm-hmm. but you may recognize him from the film Fences, and also he was on The Leftovers. He was on The Leftovers, that's right. Yep. Great actor. 
Uh, and this is just a really good article that goes into his feelings about the character and some of the, again, the behind the scenes stuff and what they considered in this story and how they were portraying it. Uh, so that's definitely worth the read. And I included that in the show notes. And finally, just a really great interview straight up with Damon by the best TV critic out there, Alan Sepinwall. Uh, and they just go into the whole series and it's just great for these two guys to sit down and talk because they've been doing this for Damon's entire career. Uh, you know, Alan Sepinwall has been reviewing starting with Lost. So it's great the the kind of back and forth that they have and how open Damon feels talking with him. And there's a lot of good stuff. And he talks a lot about nostalgia, not only um, in the show, but also in our society and kind of how culturally we tend to look back and how that just creates a kind of a reverberation and echo instead of really showing anything new or the truth in that matter it just becomes kind of like a mythology uh so that's kind of a deep and good interview that i wanted to put in the show notes as well so uh that's all the news i got awesome well let's go ahead and jump into some things that i wanted to point out from this episode now what's interesting is typically we theorize a lot about uh, you know what what the show is telling us, and we come up with theories about things that we are hoping we will you know be proved later on are true or not. But these last two episodes, episodes five and six, have been all about or f- primarily about giving us answers. So it's it's almost like a lot of the the theorizing is coming to a place where we can actually get some resolutions to these questions, um, and it's it's atypical. Uh, for a show, especially one by Damon Lindelof, to actually get us to the place where we're getting some satisfying answers. Yeah. Um, and he's uh, uh, and granted, you know, I know that for a lot of people, Lost didn't particularly deliver a satisfying answer. And The Leftovers from the get-go was a show that told you yes. it was not going to be about giving you satisfying answers. It was going to be more about the journey, not about the the end point. But here in Watchmen, I think we found a perfectly struck balance of a half of a season so far, or actually now two-thirds of a season, that have given us great things to theorize about. And now these theories are starting to pay off. So uh, in this episode, I don't feel like there's a lot to theorize, but more to comment on what we have learned. There's still some some theories, but the the key things, I think, is just to kind of open up the way in which this these episodes have kind of... Uh, forced, you know, forced me and hopefully other viewers to kind of reflect on what we have been exposed to so far in the series. So I've, I've done a kind of an analysis of titles before. Uh, and this week I wanted to jump in and start with that because the title of this episode, uh, I think it's This Exceptional Being or something along those lines, is in reference to the Under the Hood memoir that is included in the pages of the original novel. And when uh, the writer of Under the Hood, which was the original Night Owl, uh, describes Hooded Justice, he described him with that term, this exceptional being. But I was doing some reading online and I found an article in IGN where the term, you know, it's not a necessarily unique term. It's probably crops up in many other areas. But uh, the writer of this IGN article uh, pointed out that there is actually a uh, article that was published in 1874 by Popular Science Monthly. 1874. And this was 
an article called The Natural History of Man by French biologist Armand de Quarterfages, which is an amazing name. Uh, if, if, <laughs> you know, if ever there was going to be a, a character to like follow Indiana Jones, it would have to be Armand de Quarterfages. Well, you remember anyway. that there was that uh, that Indiana Jones knockoff, Alan Quartermain. Alan Quarter. Well, and actually, Alan Quartermain precedes Indiana <laughs> right, Jones I know, uh, I know. In, in literature. But, <laughs> but yeah, the yeah. Film, right. But the right. film was trying to be like an Indiana Jones. But yeah, Armand de Quarterfages <laughs> was a biologist who at the time, you know, in the 1800s, when this article was published, you can imagine, of course, the prejudice that existed. And, and at the time, there were theories, there were, there were scientists who considered the people of color to be an actual different species mm -hmm. from white people. Um, and Quarterfages was one of the biologists who pushed against this idea that he, he believed that uh, the evidence of the of the presented in the history of people who were colonized, primarily people of color, that their art, that their culture, that the language, that their morality, all exhibited signs of us being an entire human species. That these were not separate from uh, white Europeans, and that quote, uh, "This exceptional being," comes from one of his passages. These exclusively human faculties seem admirably to complete this exceptional being. So I thought it was interesting that you know we I don't know if this was a deliberate reference to this particular uh, uh, article, and I appreciate the folks at IGN for pointing out um, this. But that there would be a contempt, you know, a, a, a an article, uh, a, a biologist that would have used that that uh, that phrase in the context of somebody who basically challenged the current uh, uh, or the uh, the the understanding of of race at the time. Um, isn't that extraordinary? Isn't too, that yeah that we um, have. This this show based around how when pe different people are presented with different people, they feel fear or um, or jealousy, right? Or uh, or the 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 uh, the kind of levels of power come out, right? Mm -hmm. And here it reflects on a man who saw something different and thought it was exceptional. Right. It kind of makes it gives me a little chills, man, and it really yeah. touches me because it it uh it just goes to show you know like I, it's funny we just watched the Dora the Explorer movie, uh -huh. uh, which I loved by the way, and if you have kids, I suggest you watch it. I thought it was fa actually really way better than I thought it, or it had any right to be. Like it was really good. And part of the kind of the plot is that they find this city of gold. The parents find it, and she thinks that her parents have been looking for it all these years, but they found it a long time ago. They just wanted to leave it there. Uh. They wanted to appreciate it and look at it and let it be. And they felt if they told anyone, it, it would, would be, be exploited. Yeah, it would be exploited. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so that is kind of the a similar way of just thinking about, you know, when you meet someone different, when you see something different to see it as exceptional, as amazing, as wonderful, as new, right. Mm -hmm. As something mm -hmm. that can brighten your life and make it better. 
and make you better, not something that, you know, you fear and want to exploit or control. Right. Um, I want to just mention the author of that article is Sidant Adal Ad. Adlaka, sorry about that. Sidant Adlaka, and he's a reviewer at IGN who recapped and reviewed episode six. Maybe we can include the article in the show notes so that we I can, will. Uh, you know, show people. And he actually links to the original uh, 1874 article, uh, so you people can take a look at that as well. So, um, and uh, okay, so then. Moving forward, the I think you know some exceptional stuff in this episode when it comes to understanding, you know the kind of kind of exposing new layers or or kind of turning on its head the idea of how vigilantes in comic book mediums um, use masks and use hidden identities, right? Because there are layers of identity, you know, when a, when Batman puts on his cowl or when Spider-Man puts on his mask, there's this idea that they are protecting those that they are close to. So, you know, if I, if I were fighting crime as Peter Parker, then people would know who I am. And so my family would be at risk. Uh, so I used, I take on this uh, persona so that I can fight crime and not put, others in danger. But in the case of Hooded Justice, he was primarily protecting not only his family, but but himself. Um, and that the mask served uh, the purpose of, you know, fighting against a system that even if the system was inspired by his exploits and a system that would have considered a vigilante like him a hero, the fact that if it was revealed that he was a black man, it would have devalued any of his work. Yeah. Um, anyway, they would have killed him. It would have killed him. Good, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, re, so even if you had, you know, like that scene that we're shown where, when he rescues the couple, right. Uh, the, the couple shortly after he's been, uh, uh, scared by, by, by being lynched, not killed, but by being lynched, uh, uh, prior you know, and and his execution stayed uh, as a way to threaten him. Mm. Um, had that couple seen a black man approaching them to save them, uh, I don't know that they would have reacted the same way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, and that's then, something that Damon actually points out in the podcast, uh-huh. and they talk about. Yeah, which is that when they made that scene, they consciously were thinking. Well, this is what always happens. The the hero, it's like this, you know, like with Spider-Man, he puts on the mask and then he has to go save, mm-hmm. you know, he goes chasing and inadvertently kills his uncle, right? Right. And and like things with Batman, like there's stages, there's the origin story and then there's the origin of when they decided to become a costumed hero. Right. You know, the impetus, Batman, the death of the family, then the impetus is when he grows older and and I realize he has the means Mm -hmm. to do this, you know, and with Will, the idea that exactly what you pointed out, man, and that's what Damon said, that he had to put on that mask, too, because he was saving a white couple. Right. And it it would if they they recognize that more so than they would another human man be- just because he was black. Yeah. You know, so he had to become something completely other 
So they would kind of understand even the dynamics of what was occurring. And even further turning the idea of the uh, the incident that kind of inspires them to become a hero. Like you said, you know, there's that moment where the hero, uh, you know, very typical in in, the, in comic books, has that has that experience where they, for the first time, save somebody. And that is what kind of puts them on the map as a savior. What's interesting is that in that moment, Will's motivation was not to save that couple. It was to beat the crap out of those white men. It was his rage. Yeah. Coming out to put to hurt those white folks, right? Uh, which is something that that is pointed out, you know, over and over in the series that his justification for being a violent person can also be problematic. His wife and his children feel scared of him, right? So there's that idea too that is a the, the, the what what is the is the course of violent reaction any better than the injustice is being played on yourself. It, became, um, it, it, cons- you know? it consumes him as it consumes does him. the and, and it's a very difficult yeah. question to wrestle with because you find, you know, he is justified. He is justified in his rage and in his violence, but is it, is it, the, is it ultimately the right answer? And, and so, yeah, so the, the incident of, of those people being saved had less to do with him having compassion and wanting to save those people and more to do with him channeling his rage towards those who were offending uh, that couple. Yeah. And as June points out, you're an angry man. Yeah. What are you going to do when they put a club and a, and a badge in your hand, Mm -hmm. you know? And um, I mean, this is a, that is an age old question that we see played out in so much uh, TV and film, right? Mm-hmm. The person yeah. in uh, the the policeman, the and and recently in the past ten to fifteen years in television, there's the rise of the anti-hero, right? Mm-hmm. Who is this typically man and most often white man who has to question their use of power and justice mm-hmm. and how that balances? And in this case we have a different story, a story that we may not have seen too many times before, right? Where exactly like you're saying, that anger and that power comes from the injustices done to him, mm-hmm. not from his station in society, being a cop, be, right? Right. Being a co- When he is made to be a police officer, he's actually, uh, his power is taken away by his fellow officers, Right. He's lesser than he he's in a sense, you know, he becomes the opposite mm-hmm. and he's like a criminal with uh, amongst the police, even though he's supposed to be a cop. Yeah. Um, the Cyclops has got him. And in front of all of his policemen, he's not even worthy of yeah. being made a policeman by the police chief. They have the African-American officer be the one who inducts him into the police. So even from the beginning, from the moment he is becomes a policeman, he is it is let known to the world. Yes, he's a policeman, but he's not the same kind of policeman. Yeah. And there's a very interesting and subtle way that they shoot and light that scene mm-hmm. where when the white cops are getting their badges, we have very wide open shots. You see cameras flashing. The spotlight is on them. But right when it comes to him, the spotlight goes down and then it pops up on the next guy. The cameras stop. Everything kind of pauses for a second because 
this is not allowed to be shown, right? right? And his, then, com- his commendation happens yeah. in the shadows. The the, exactly. the the light moves over, and it's as, it's as if nobody even is aware that he is getting inducted into yeah. the police. And that that reflects representation. That that picture's not going to be in the paper. Right, right. Um, and then I thought, I mean, a, what a stroke of genius on the part of the the writers and the creators of the show to give Will a white mask that he wears under his hood in order to convey that the hero is a white person underneath that hood, because otherwise he would not be accepted as a hero. Um, You know, we have lived for so long with the image of the typically white superhero who puts on the dark mask, you know, from the days of the Lone Ranger and Zorro all the way to Robin and any, you know, many modern heroes this day. And here we have a character who is putting on a white mask, not to hide his seek his real identity, but to hide his race. So he has to hide. He's 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 using the hooded justice mask to hide his identity, and then he's using the mask over his eyes with the paint to hide his his race, his true identity. Right, his. The thing about himself that is most us, that that is exposed the moment somebody else sees us, has to be covered up. Uh, I just thought it was incredibly powerful. And it, you know, it resonates within the show, too, because we have seen his granddaughter multiple times spraying on the black mask mm-hmm. on her eyes. Uh, and so which is I even think- darker which in a way it made me think i'm glad you mentioned that because when i thought about that i thought that there's something there and i don't i i you know i, I haven't fully fleshed it out mm-hmm. and i'm not so well, sure if there is of that and we have a letter later from uh-huh. misha that brings this up um yeah. of of that like it make it reminds me of uh for me I learned about this from school days, Spike Lee movie about the differences of people who are lighter and darker skinned and Mm -hmm. how, and how they're treated in society. And the fact that when sister Knight puts on that, it's darker. Yeah. And sister Knight, though, I don't know that. I mean, yes, yes. She's living with prejudice and racism in her society, but there is no doubt in most people who are exposed to working with her that she's not a black woman. She doesn't have to hide her race to be a hero. Yes. But Will has to hide his race to be a hero, Uh, which I thought it was, again, uh, uh, that image of a black man putting on a white mask was just so stunning. Something that has, is so much a part of American culture the hero that puts on the mask and to think of of that being overturned this way or kind of flipped on its head was just a really really uh powerful image yeah and um, it's super and it's also when you think about um kind of the way it talks about history and the way this is hidden and kind of the idea that we've been talking about from the beginning of remixing the watchmen Mm-hmm. That the history and and we were right, you know, and I, I'm not taking credit. Right? I'm just saying I think that we took this show seriously yeah. on, on a uh, uh, on a level that that um, begged for and called for that introspection. 
And it fleshed out, and it's true, that the remix was about how Watchmen was about how histories are told. Yeah. And this show was going to be about how that original history was different from what we thought. And I just think that meta – uh, it's just brilliant to me, yeah. and I just love it because it speaks to so many different levels of our own nostalgia of when – often like when I think about when people today are sitting around talking about like, you know, you've got article upon article talking about Avengers Infinity War, <laughs> like, you know, like how deep this is and oh my gosh, that – and then you kind of go back and you learn like who these guys were when they mm-hmm. were actually writing these comics. And they were like a bunch of like tripped out hippies, like literally tripping on acid in Marvel, mm-hmm. writing these comics like the, it, and now it's this big Disney thing Yeah, is it, you know, that happens in real life. That's this, the comics we see are in a sense were told by people for a reason that has now become completely commercialized and changed in a way that is wholly different from the outsiders they were at that time. I think also the, uh, the, the, the piece with within the, the the layers of identity being hidden, you know, it, it makes you think also about how the identity of certain heroes, you know, for for a character for for a a white superhero like Superman, his true identity is Superman. The the mask is the Clark Kent persona, yeah, right? It's yeah. it's it's he doesn't have to worry about protecting himself and not necessarily those around him as much. It's more about him uh, having an opportunity to be able to operate as a normal human being within society. Here we have this, uh, you know, he, he wants to get the experience of what it's like to be a normal human by taking on the Clark Kent persona. Yes. But definitely. here he, you know, will doesn't get even the chance to be uh, treated as a real human being in his own you know, persona as a policeman. And so in taking on this identity and pretending to be a white man under that mask, it's almost, it it gives him a power that he's not able to have otherwise. Yeah. And then Um, he's doubly, and then it's, and then he's like double fucked when he becomes hooded justice mm -hmm. and captain metropolis comes into the picture. Yeah. Because then it's like, he's putting on the white and then he's putting on, and then he's putting on the whole outfit Mm-hmm. And that's a whole ruse too. It's like it just and even, gets and even worse. As, and even as a white man who wants to fight against things like the Klan, that still isn't good enough, right? Yeah, yeah. For for the Minutemen, they didn't want to uh, have their their uh, campaigns against crime be tied to things like race or whatnot. They'd rather fight some kind of superpowered being or m- magical being than uh, talk about fighting true injustice in society, even if it was coming from a white man, even if hooded justice was understood to be a white man, it still wasn't a worthy uh, 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 campaign or a a worthy cause for the heroes to take on. Now, do you think, Roberto, in this, I don't think that there's evidence of this in the indexes or related materials for the original comic, 
But within the confines of this show, I got the feeling that Captain Metropolis was working with Cyclops and, mm-hmm. and that in effect, the whole um, bank sponsorship, the, all that stuff was rolled into the idea that that was Cyclops too. That it was usurping him yeah. from the inside. Kind that of. it's That's like interesting. They it, they they knew who Will was. They yeah. knew it was a black guy who was hooded justice, and they saw the power he was having. So instead of killing him, they decided to subvert him. Subvert him. That's interesting. Um, Mesmerize him. When we when we talk about what's coming up on the PDPedia stuff, there is some stuff there about Captain Metropolis. Right. So don't know if there's any evidence. You would think that such evidence would have been present there, that it was more about his own ignorance. But it's interesting. It's an interesting uh, layer to add to it. Um, the last thing I wanted to talk about here is the kind of the 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 truth that is presented by um, American Hero Story and how easy you know. In a way, the fact that at first, we know, when we were speculating about American Hero Story whitewashing the character of of uh, Hooded Justice is, pro- you know, what was kind of the, 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 the idea that we were believing that or that we were leaning towards is that, OK, so Hooded Justice was a black man, but history uh, kind of rewrote that to fit a narrative for those who are in power. But the reality is that people really did believe he was a white man. So, so hooded justice contributed to his own whitewashing of his story because he couldn't have operated otherwise if he had been operating as a black man. Yeah. So it's not surprising that the American hero story presents him as a white man, because that is, uh, that was what the persona he had to take on in order to be a hero. Um, and then I thought it was really interesting too how we had these images towards towards the end of uh, not, not well towards the end of the episode we see those images of Will finally taking on the uh, the deli owner um, and uh, or the, the the market owner the guy who owned the little market who had earlier on Fred, thrown a, a Molotov cocktail is. into the Jewish dine uh, into the Jewish business. Which, by the way, I just I want to I don't I mean to interrupt, but since you're bringing up the guy's name is Fred, yes, and there have been some discussions. I don't necessarily think that this is what they were going for, but perhaps it is because there are other clues that they put in this episode, such as the okay symbol on the forehead, yeah, which has become kind of like a alt right white supremacy. Uh, The okay, the okay symbol, right. And being used for the Cyclops Mm -hmm. thing. Yep. Yep. So, but there are people and there were some articles written that perhaps they were taking aim at Fred Trump that this guy was supposed to be him in some way. Um, I don't really see it because I think that there's not enough specifics there. Um, I think it's a little bit of a reach. I don't think it's a reach to say that it describes a certain type of white man in America. (laughs) You know, that's not a reach, but I don't, I particularly don't think that this was them trying to spoof someone though with some of the other names they've been when they did Lois Clark, right? The woman who owned the um, farm wasn't Mm -hmm. her name like 
Kent or Kent Clark or something? Uh, right? Yeah, the last name was Clark. It was John, Jonathan Clark. Right. So they yeah, were yeah. obviously – they even talked about that in the podcast mm-hmm. too, that that was on purpose. Yeah. So I don't know if that was, but I just wanted to mention it because that was part of a little controversy that was, and people were discussing it. And I'm not quite, I think that there are some things that they're putting in, but I yeah. also think that there's more, they're really aiming more for a timeless quality with what, with the ideas and themes that they're yeah. trying to represent here. Right. So I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure they they probably don't mind the parallels being drawn, even if True. it's not a, de- a deliberate uh, uh, a, a deliberate connection there. Um, but in that scene, when he kills the diner owner, he is wearing a mask and his uniform at the same time, which is an interest kind of foreshadowing of what's happening in Tulsa with the police sanctioning. Vig, uh, oh, masked hero, right. yeah, right. It's kind of an interesting juxtaposition there. So not only did he did he give birth to the superhero, uh, the vigilante hero, but also kind of it kind of predates a a world in which policemen have to wear masks to do their job properly. So I thought that was interesting how he he takes on that persona, and in many ways, each one each uniform conveys a different aspect of the justice he's seeking on the one hand he wants to be able to bring these people to justice which is what the uniform represents but then his mask represents vigilante justice which is ultimately the 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 step that helps him cross the line and actually kill these people uh and 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 burn the place down hey roberto what do you think about the idea do you think that there is the idea here of his 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 uh his guilt now as an older man right mm-hmm. or the idea that by donning this white face by taking uh, by becoming a police officer right um that he the idea that we've seen of the uncle tom right of the person who contributes to their own oppression. Yeah. Um, the, the idea that whether this is not in so much as blaming that person, right. But that that's part of the cycle, you know, where people are turned against themselves mm-hmm. as we see later on, which is exactly what they do. Right. With the mesmerizing. Yeah. Um, and that will is representational, uh, representative of that idea um, that there are problems that the, you have the initial idea, right, of one people subjugating another. But as this progresses, there are levels that that develop where the people themselves become their own oppressor. Through and that, that, and that could kind of play into the the whole him becoming a victim to his own violence as well. Yes, uh, which we which we see evidence of with in the actual original comic, because I believe that in the end, uh, uh, not in the end, but a, a part of their relationship is that Will became physically abusive right. to Captain Metropolis. Mm-hmm. Um, that the anger took him over. Right. And I right. think that that is, that is something 
that I think I'd like to see them develop. And I think if we're both right about what this clock is and what Lady True has planned, that the idea that these ideas may come out and and the idea that Judd and Will are not that different, Mm -hmm. you know? Right. Um, That Will became... Uh, what did he do all those years after he got the mesmerizing equipment? Because guess what? It's 2019 in Tulsa and Cyclops is still around. Yeah. So he obviously didn't mesmerize everyone on the team to fight white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What happened? Was it, Did his anger become so strong that he was unable to even ac- try to accomplish that goal because yeah. he allowed it to consume him. But then is he to blame for that? Look what he's been through. Right. You right. know, we that's, have to seek the, to understand that. That's the difficult question, right? You know, how can you blame him for being an angry person? Seeing the kind of, of, of terror that he's the way that he's been terrorized. Um, and my guess to your my answer my guess to your answer as to what did he do all this time may be tied to some of the PDPedia stuff that we're gonna yes. talk about in a yeah. second. Thank you once again, cufflinks.com for sponsoring our show, taking a little mid-ad break to talk about cufflinks.com slash DVR. One year sponsoring the DVR Podcast Network. We love you, Cufflinks, and it's Black Friday today, baby. You can save 20% off site-wide. Use code BLACKFRIDAY. Also, free shipping on orders over $100. Look good when you step out in the morning. Make an impression. Go to cufflinks.com slash DVR today. They've got so many awesome products, whether you're a geek or you're just trying to look good. Go to cufflinks.com today. Use code BLACKFRIDAY and get free shipping on orders over $100, also 20% off site-wide, cufflinks.com. Do it. Oh, I did want to point out uh, that when we were talking about um, American Hero Story, that the actor who plays Captain Metropolis, or no, who plays Hooded Justice, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. in the um, in the scene in the police station is in, an in actor- the show within the show. In yeah, the show Hero within the show, show mm-hmm. is an actor named Cheyenne Jackson, who's famously out mm-hmm. and is- incredibly handsome as you see in yeah. the show and yeah. i and it was quite a stir when he came out um yeah and so the so. fact that he is the actor in american hero story you know you you could see that in so many ways it's one of them is are the are the producers of the show even aware that he is a that he is a gay man i would say yes if they are <laughs> if they are then you know, they may be patting themselves on a, on the back for having the representation of a gay man in the show, not realizing that it's a story that's been whitewashed over. Uh, because- I think it's purposeful to show. Um, I think it's to maybe. I mean, I think that it, it it could be a little bit of like to to to. It's almost a play on the representation thing, right? Right. Yeah. And and it's it's kind of like how in Hollywood, you know, they like to check off boxes, right? And so there's still a la- there's still a deeper layer within this depiction, this Hollywood depiction of this story that even the creators aren't aware of themselves, even though 
uh, they probably are congratulating themselves for including a gay man in the story, right? I just thought that was interesting. Well, that yeah, that's it was con- that, that whole scene, and I want to say again, they should have got Heath Actor, Heath Sentazo, the solo uh-huh. man himself. He would have played that cop so well, man. Yeah. Oh gosh, that would have been great. But that whole scene was really fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, the way they shot it, the way they played it out. Yeah, And he was great in it too. And just like the kind of determination once he took the mask off uh, was something really awesome. I I really love that. And I wonder if, I wonder, maybe I'm only dreaming, but maybe they'll surprise us with like a full episode at the end of the season, maybe on HBO or something, or maybe they can kind of put these together. Supplemental material to have a full full episode of American Hero Story. It'd be fun. Yeah. Yeah, and it's kind of speaking to that too, that, that that contrast between American Hero Story and what happened in Truth. It was in- interesting to see the incident at the market in the flashback as opposed to the incident that was presented towards episode two or episode one of American Hero Story, where it was almost an inverse, right? Uh, uh, he finds – the the Hura Justice finds himself in this deli, af- in this uh, restaurant after – uh, discovering the the Cyclops plot, and he is he is the one who has broken into the store. It's not exactly. the other guys yeah. who have broken into, and he came to do to rescue them. Yeah. And it's not like he broke in through the window to stop these people. He is breaking out. He's going through the window to escape being killed by by Fred, by the owner of the store. So it was interesting again to kind of see how. History is got gets rewritten depending on how you uh, what angle you give to the story and who you think may be behind the hood. Yeah, that that was great. Yeah, the and whole thing with that the entire window. scene with her paralyzed in midair and and communicating with uh, with uh, 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 guys, Lori with Lori uh, in that moment was just fantastic. It so, was so really well cool. It yeah. brought me back. It was that old Matrix. Yeah. Um, circular camera array. And mm-hmm. I was lucky enough to work on um, one of the first systems, one of the tests of the first camera systems like that. It was called the pause system. Uh-huh. And it was just an array of cameras. And, and we were, I was a PA, I was just like moving stuff in and out, but it was super cool to see it. And they were just like squirting water and then they'd all gather around and see how the cameras picked it up and wait for it. And this was like 20 years ago and they'd wait for it to like come on the screen and we'd all go, Oh my God, it's like frozen in the air and you can go all around it, you know? And now they just kind of put it in the middle of the show, but I would have liked to see the behind the scenes of how. Now they probably don't even shoot it that way. It's all computer animated. It's probably a combination, yeah. right, of of, of uh, st- stuff done yes. in green screen and stuff added exactly. in post and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and then you know it's interesting how even watching this episode, how it it forced me to ex- it, it exposed my own racial biases. You know because I don't know about you, uh, Axel, but I, I'm not a uh, I. I I am not a fully enlightened person, right? We all have biases. Uh, they come from Definitely. our cultural background. They come from the way we were raised. They come from our place in society. And so I think that's an important thing to for, for us to be aware of and acknowledge our biases. And even when I think I may be uh, an enlightened individual, a show like this comes around 
and exposes me to my own biases. And and the scene that that came into question for me was the moment when the Minutemen are bringing in hooded justice. And of course, there's the there's the the, the surface stuff, right? What we're seeing that's happening, which is that hooded justice's vision for working with this group. And his mission of being able to bring this team together to work against the injustices he sees are completely usurped, uh, and uh, and that uh, really what they what the team wanted to do was basically exploit him because he was the first hero, and so it it, it helps the the machine that Metropolis is building in this Minutemen to uh, to become more marketable and more popular. But then. Towards the end of that scene, Metropolis exposes kind of their first ad campaign with this bank. And it's the poster with uh, Dollar Bill. And it's a poster we have seen repeatedly uh, throughout this series. We've seen it at least once or twice before. And it wasn't until this episode, and actually was reading a review of this episode, that I came to the realization. I I hadn't even noticed. This is how under the radar my own kind of biases went i hadn't even noticed that the burglar in the image is a caricature of a black man that that you know kind of that 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 tip when you think about like propaganda from that era and how black people were portrayed in images Mm -hmm. typically they would be portrayed in some kind of uh, either a uh, kind of a minstrel type of character or a character always impoverished or a character who was supposed to be kind of the, the, the bad thing to be watching out for. I did not even notice that image. It, it's so ingrained in my own way of, of, of what I know that it didn't even occur to me that that image portrayed a, a very true, very clear depiction of uh, internalized, uh, not internalized, of institutionalized racism in our society. Yeah, I did not. I didn't notice that either. I just kind it, of glanced at it. it I glanced at it, it and it, it yeah. didn't even register. And that's good. And that's what it's all about. We were having that's a little discussion it, yeah. before the show started that you know, you have a choice, right? And yeah. and when something is presented to you and it exposes your lack of knowledge or your bias, right? Um, and, or your prejudgment. Which, and just when we think we may be, you know, fairly enlightened and yeah. progressive in our way of thinking, something like this comes along and we don't even notice it. Yeah. That's how internalized, that, that's how integrated institutional racism is. But then you have to make that choice to open it, yourself to exactly, it. Exactly, you and, do. And, but and but, not, but yeah. had I not read that article to explore more and stuff. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't, I would still be talking to you right now, not having realized that. Right. Well, that's what we see. You have to be willing to dig deeper, right? Yeah. Uh, This is the thing. This is, these are the fluxes that, and well, I should say these, these are the things our society is, is starting to hopefully learn Though we say that over and over again. We're at least in a, in a time in which people are considering this more mm-hmm. when you even see things like, you know, Aunt Jemima syrup, right? Like right. these right. things that you grew up with. And then you say, what the hell? Oh my God. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, because for your life, that's not what your experiences has you attuned to. Mm-hmm. And when you see that it's your choice to say, 
as a human being, open yourself and be receptive to what other people feel about it. Right. Uh, or to say, rah, rah, you know, and I yeah. hope we choose to be receptive and say, yeah, oh, but okay. it is, but it, it, I, I want to understand a, that. And it's a call to self-awareness and action to, to be like, you really have to be observing and you really have to be paying attention because shit like yeah. this can, can be shown to you and that image passes right through you and you don't even notice it. You just accept it. Yeah. So it, I, I just found that it was incredibly, uh, um, I don't know, for me, uh, it was very eye-opening. And, uh, and, and it looks like, you know, right now you, you yourself said, wow, I hadn't even noticed that either myself. Right. So I think it can, it can be a way for those of us who have benefited from our privilege to open our eyes. And it's cool. And it's interesting the way they show it in the show, mm -hmm. he presents it to all the yeah. white people. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and basically uh, on the heels of shutting up hooded justice when yep. he was just about to talk about this exactly. white conspiracy right yes. so on the heels of him cutting him off he shows this poster that has you know it's about a bank yeah but did you look at how the burglar is depicted in the poster for the bank and it's a black man so anyway it was i just found that fascinating um and i and 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 appreciate and i appreciate it i appreciated being called on my own shit yeah definitely um The other uh, two more points I want to make. I know we've been going long on this one, but uh, there's this retcon. There's always been a problem, especially in the comic book and in the genre media with retcons. It's very hard to pull off a retcon, um, you know, and whether, you know, within, within comic books, we have had them over and over and over happening again. And to, you know, For example, the, the, uh, many people consider the Spider-Man clone saga one of the worst examples of a retcon, right? Where they went back in time and they, they revealed that the person we thought had been Peter Parker for decades was not Peter Parker, was some clone of Peter Parker, um, in order to then kind of tell this new story. Um, or, or even in Star Wars with Rogue One, when they revealed that the, that the weakness in the Death Star was put there on purpose, right? For some people that was like, okay, that's kind of going back and, you know, kind of re reconceiving <laughs> the story in a certain way. I find that the way that they have retconned Hooded Justice into this thing is almost like it was meant to be yes. this. It's incredibly, incredibly so so well integrates into the story and then in doing so adds so much to the original story because everything you see in hooded justice looked at it through through this lens makes so much sense for the origin of this character i mean you, you you'd like to think that alan moore almost had the after had some prescience to think somebody in the future is going to want to tell this story and so i'm just going to lay the seeds here so that it can be told later because it's amazing how well it fits in. I mean, from the fact that his identity was never clearly revealed. I mean, making it, making that clear from the onset of the original book, why would Alan Moore choose to do that? Who knows? It's almost like he knew that at some point down the road, the story was going to be told. And this, we needed this open to be able to tell the story. Um, the fact that, It makes perfect. Why would somebody like Hooded Justice take on what's basically the inverse of a Ku Klux Klan uniform, a black version or a dark version? It's kind of a dark purple version of a Ku Klux Klan hood for his costume. Well, it makes perfect sense for the person who is fighting against 
white supremacy to overturn that image of the Ku Klux Klan and turn it on its head, make it a black hood instead. And why would hooded justice carry a noose around his neck and ropes around his wrists if it wasn't somehow tied to a, a people who has been whose history of oppression is defined by such imagery, right? I just find it incredibly. Uh, it's very weird, dude. Revealing. I know. I have. I have so theories well. about. Like, I was with people. I've had an issue with this the whole season, which is some people saying like, "There's no way he's hooded just." And I just said like, we've been talking about it, and I think from the very be- it just made so much sense because of exactly the reasons you're talking about. The image, the history. So, I mean, it, it, you're absolutely right. I feel, I kind of feel in like our faces. It is blatantly in our <laughs> faces, dude. I know that Damon, he put on this Instagram post where he like wrote this letter to Alan Moore when he was a kid, where and you know HBO approached him three different times to do this because they knew that this was his like holy grail. Mm-hmm. You know, like Damon has always said that. You know, Star Wars and Watchmen, like this is like his holy grail. That's what kind of formed his way of doing things. And when you look at Lost and Leftovers and you see the mix of mythology and drama, you know, and and social and cultural stuff, it's really present there. But this is like astounding because you're right. There is just no way to say this doesn't work. Like, there's no argument that he didn't have to do anything. It was there. And I almost feel like Moore, who is um, famously like an anarchist, reclusive and all that, like, I feel like he told him this. I don't know. You know, I I feel like years later, Damon's going to say, hey, look, I got to be honest with you. Alan, this is real. I didn't write any of this. Alan it's Moore did. Like I planted these clues <laughs> for Damon Lindelof to find them thirty years later or something. It's too much. Unbelievable how well it works. Yeah, it's too much. How well it works. Uh, and you know, I know that Alan Moore has had a very challenging relationship with DC Comics. I know that he has pretty much disavowed anything that's not the original comic book work, and he feels betrayed by DC. I hope, I really do hope he finds it at some point that he gets the opportunity to see what Damon Lindelof did with this. I think this would make him proud uh, of I what do. he's I agree. accomplished here. I agree. I, I'd like to think that. Um, but yeah, I just think it's incredible how the how the retcon problem was not only avoided in this um in this story, but how it further enhances the original story. It's just remarkable. That reminds me a little bit too of how I feel the movie Blade Runner 2049 makes Blade Runner a better movie um, because it just merges so well with it. Yeah. And it's, it's real. And it show. I think something that it does show if it's not a grand conspiracy, which it could be, and that's like meta, meta, meta. Yeah. Um, it just shows that the people writing this show and Damon really loved the material and they understood what Watchmen was about. It was always about this kind of stuff. Like people who came out in the beginning and said, Oh, they're making Watchmen political. What are you talking about? That is what the comic was. That's what made it groundbreaking is that it went there and it went there hard. 
Not only that it was that, but that there is the potential for it to be even more. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, great. You're, I'm glad you brought that up because yeah. it's like so obvious, but the ropes, the, it's, it's how yeah. Could, how could we not see it? It's unbelievable. It's yeah. too much. And actually, you know, there were on a, on the Facebook, on a few of these Facebook groups, people were showing like close-ups of the original drawings of Hooded Justice uh-huh. and trying to show how it looked like there was, <laughs> was makeup around the eyes. Yeah, yeah. Like, and I was like, no, I think you're maybe stretching there. You might be stretching it, but still, but it's just brilliant. I, I couldn't I, believe it. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Uh, and then uh, last point on the actual episode here was the hanging of Jeb. So we get we get our answer on how Jeb was led <clears throat> to to be hung. And yes, uh, Will wasn't able to physically lift him to do to hang him, but but was able to control him with the mesmerizing machine. Um, and uh, what is interesting about this scene to me, that moment when he he tells him, you know, do you have a you have a secret in your closet? And it's hard to tell in that moment if if Jeb is revealing his true self, like he truly is uh, a member of the Seven K, and that uh, I mean of the uh, yeah of the, of the cavalry, or or uh, and, and and somebody who espouses the beliefs of the clan, or if somehow Will has gotten it wrong here. That, but but we never get that yeah, resolution. Yeah, Judd right? does. Yeah, you're right because this, uh, Don Johnson has this weird smirk on his face at one moment that it's almost like you feel like he's about to reveal he's been the nefarious mastermind all along, and then he says something like, "Don't you understand? I'm trying to help you people or something along those." I lines. I think that's the key there, Roberto. And is- there is there's going to be something there which I think is going to be very telling about yes, the history. Uh, of Jeb is problematic and he oh, himself has it of Judd. I'm sorry. I keep saying That's calling okay. him Jeb. Judd is problematic and he has a past that uh, he has had to wrestle with. And we don't know that his motives were always a hundred percent clear, but it's not like Will is also a hundred percent clear yes. on what he's doing. I think there is still more to be mined there. And so I'm looking forward to seeing how that further resolves. That was that was the biggest kind of point of what if or a speculation here is I'm not sure that it's as clear cut as Will sees it. Well, you know, I think it never is, right? Yeah. And I think that both Judd and Keen represent a type of uh, white man in power, mm-hmm. you know, that um, is also worthy of examination. Yeah. And that is that he is not a, you know, serial killer who only wants to kill all black people, you know? Right. right. Judd is a guy, I, I think what they're trying to go for here, and maybe, you know, this is just my theory, is that, like I've been saying, that he kept these robes as a way of reminding himself that that was like too harsh, but he was still a racist. You know, I think he it still maybe that. felt it could be a form of penance. It could be a reminder for himself. But, but, but you, you know, know, racist in the se- in the sense that he could be friends with, as we see so often in the world, and as and me as a white dude who's been around a lot of dudes like this, who a person who has you know, they work with people, diverse people, they're friends with them, have them over their house, but they can't date my daughter. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You see what I'm trying to say? Like yeah, yeah. Judd was that guy. 
And that is, I think, especially when you're going to examine all sides, you need to examine that side too. Mm -hmm. A person who feels the guilt, who knows what their ancestors, their granddaddy did was wrong, but yet still holds up the establishment, Yeah, yet still may speak and act as if he is a friend. Mm-hmm. But it it's part of the mesmerizing that he too has been mesmerized. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that I I I can also read it as he recognizes his past and his uh, prejudice, and this is a way to remind himself of continuing yeah. to do the 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 work in improving things, right? And yeah. trying to make things better. Maybe but, this but is- even though he's make he's not making it better, you know what I mean? Like. He's continuing it, but he thinks he is. He thinks he is. Anyway, I'm really curious to see what comes out of that. Yeah, uh, because I think that that is that is a in the in the sense that uh, historically in film studies and you know people talk about the magical Negro, right? Yeah, Uh, that was very representational in like 40s, 50s films, and then and in literature as well. And then, but in a sense, there's also like this magical white guy, magical Caucasian, you know, like a Judd who says, Oh, I, I'm going to help you. I'm good, but not too much. Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Not too much. I have, to, we, we can't go crazy about it. Right. You know, we have to do change is incremental. You have to stay oppressed, you know, right. like that kind of thing that I think that Judd represents. I hope you're right. I hope we see more of that. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much time we have, but I right. think it's good though that they that they had that interaction was not a straight up Judd saying, I'm the clan leader. Exactly. You know? They they they, they wanna there's still gonna be a little bit more to come from that. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Um so then this week and I think this is something that everybody who's listening to this show must do is read the PDPedia stuff. Yes. I mean, I know we typically talk about PDPedia stuff as being supplemental to the show, but there are some integral, integral pieces of information that I would think are going to make it to the show in the next three episodes because it's critical that I think people know some of this stuff in PDPedia. Um, there is, uh, a article in PDpedia, which is like a, a, uh, like a gossip piece on Lady True from a Tulsa newspaper, the Tulsa Star Sentinel. And some really interesting tidbits of information get dropped off among them that Lady True, uh, as compensation for the construction of the millennium clock, apparently, you know, because of the groundbreaking of the clock and it, created uh, some uh, problems in the immediate tri-county area uh, with the construction that they gave for free HDTVs to all the residents in the area. Um, now, this paired with him, her working with Will and Will having a mesmerizing machine, I, don't, I, I would like to think that there's a connection there. Uh, but I think that's, you know, that's a really kind of interesting piece of information that everybody who has worked, uh, who has been impacted in the vicinity, at least, of the Millennium Clock has a piece of technological equipment <laughs> in their house supplied to them by ladies. I know, this was great. I, when I first saw this, right, I was like, what? She gave a free t-? And then I was like, 
oh my Wait, god, man, this is like scanner shit or something, you know? Will. Like, Will has this yeah. mesmerizing technology. Yep. So yeah, very interesting stuff. And I and it makes me think too, because this is Damon. It doesn't mean that they haven't already used it. Right. You know what I mean? Like that's part, that's the thing that when you have Dr. Manhattan in creating worlds and then you have a guy that can mesmerize people like this to kill themselves, like in a flashlight that this is, I just, I don't know. Maybe, maybe this story is about just the introduction of this in a mass way, but I, I, I have to feel like there's more history and more stuff that we're going to be filled in that happened already that is affecting our story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to to what extent have the people here already been influenced by some uh, subliminal messaging by Lady True? Uh, Not only that, but she has put out, she has launched over 50 satellites, uh, probes into the galaxy. And yes, they're presented as probes for space exploration. And one of them is even the one that keeps an eye on Dr. Manhattan on Mars and continues to transmit information. But, you know, what if it's also satellite technology tied to this plot? Uh, You know, we don't, we don't know exactly what she's putting out there just because she says they're Voyager class exploratory probes. Doesn't mean it couldn't be satellites designed to transmit some weird uh, mesmerizing technology throughout the entire planet. Yeah. And also, that's what Vite sent his message to. Yeah, exactly. So was uh, she sending those out to try to find him? Very possible. Uh, we know that he wrote that message. And uh, did you notice that he had written save me and then he had started to write another word and D. it didn't? Yeah. It, it was the letter D. <laughs> <laughs> now people said Dr. Manhattan or Dan even, Dan Dryberg, yeah. Night Owl 2. I was thinking maybe there's maybe there's a a, a a nickname. I mean, she is a PhD. Maybe it was Doctor True, oh, uh, yeah. or, or maybe it's something else related to Do- Lady True. Not sure. But what what was the D about? Um, Lady True's mother uh, is a parallel. There's a there's a lady who wrote a book called uh, the uh, the. Uh, Tiger Mom that came out a few years back. I don't know if you remember yes, that, I do. that whole thing about kind of parenting in a very uh, kind of strict way. And so there's a play on that here in that Lady True's own mother, Beyond Mai, was the writer of a book called Pachyderm Mom. And it was about her <laughs> techniques basically uh, uh, bringing up a child who was designed, basically molded to be this genius. And so this plays into what we've been seeing with Lady True and the raising of her own daughter or clone or wh- whoever the, the the girl is. That's her name, too. And that's her name, too. Be, be, beyond, right? Yeah. So that there's even be speculation that she is cloning. She has cloned her mother and is raising her mother. And that that's why those memories that she's experiencing, she's feeding her the memories that she would that her mother had to be able to bring back her mother through her. Um, and, uh, and then that lady true took on her name, the, the name of lady true based on this character who was, uh, 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 who's a symbol of Vietnamese independence and that she has been an express proponent of Vietnamese independence, even though she is against militant nationalism, she does believe in the independence of Vietnam. So 
there's a lot of incredible awesome information stuff. there. And granted, the way that this article is played, because it's a gossip column, it basically it has like a vote at the end of each paragraph where it exposes one of these points. It says, is this fact or is this fiction? We believe this one is fiction. And, you know, so so it kind of also makes you doubt what you're reading. But it's very interesting information, nonetheless, that I think has to be in, su- in some minimal way woven into the story in the episodes to come. Definitely. Another piece is another memo uh, from the FBI, this one from Lori Blake. And it's important for us to know, and again, I, I can't imagine that this won't be revealed in the next episode, that everything we witnessed, Angela experiencing in that uh, trip taking the nostalgia drug, that she was talking through the entirety of the thing and that Lori Blake pretty much knows everything that we just learned by watching this episode. She knows that uh, Will is Huda Justice. She knows about the Cyclops organization. All of this stuff. Yeah. So this the, was great. <laughs> so, I mean, this is huge, right? Yeah, this is – and this, this, this kind of like – I got super confused because um, – it's been a busy week. I went to read the Petypedia stuff, and I started with the thing we haven't talked about yet, which is Petey's memo. Petey's memo, and okay. he mentions this, and then I was like, "What?" And yeah. then I went back and read Lori's memo, where she starts out making fun of Petey, and then she's like, "Oh, by the way, Angela was talking the entire time, the entire time." So basically, she has everything that we saw. Which we would have we would have thought just from watching the episode was something that we the audience and and uh, and Sister Knight learned is actually been exposed to Lori and whoever else she's working with. Right. So she knows that Judd was killed by Will. That he oh. has the mesmerizing technology, yeah. Yeah. like all this stuff. And I was just like, whoa. But also. The memo is written exactly – these – Damon explains on the podcast that they're the writers are writing these. So uh, that's good to know because sometimes you don't know um, – like with trailers and stuff, whether it's the marketing team cutting right. it or – you know. Right. But this is actually the writers of the show are writing everything on PDPedia. And it's very much on character. It's totally written that's in That's what's so voice. funny. Yeah, it's and it's – I was like cracking up. Yeah, because the PD ones are so dry and serious. He's like, this is not right. The costume here, the truth must be told, you know, like, right. And he's always protecting Lori, too. Yeah. Uh, and she actually makes one thing I found interesting character wise in this memo is that she makes reference to the fact that hooded justice that will stopped her dad from raping her mom. Yep. And she says, yes, this was hard for me, you know, as you can imagine. And then she makes reference to Petey and it's actually kind of sweet. Yeah. Like it shows for, for a second there in her character, which she has shown a little bit in the show, but it shows like a side of her where she appreciated that Petey was kind of standing up for her in the other memos. Yeah, and I like the way that the the this whole PDPedia thing has become self referential, yes. and it's its own little world. So go read it, people. It's yeah, fun. You definitely have to read these entries. The last piece, of course, is PD wrote uh, another memo, and in this one, she dis- he discusses first of all he recognizes that the discoveries made in the in Angela's uh, in the information they've gotten from Angela. You know, for him, who's been a, a researcher of the whole vigilante uh, phenomenon, 
you know, this this upends everything, right? I mean, he says the 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 fact that it's been revealed uh, in this discussion or in this in this information that that hooded justice was Will Reeves completely overturns the entire the entire story history that our you know researchers like himself have kind of built this entire uh, uh, idea of what the vigilante movement was how it originated and how it grew this completely recontextualizes it uh, but he also then uh, discloses the last will and testament of captain metropolis and we learn in that what last will and testament that in his dying days captain metropolis became a very different person from whom we saw in the episode somebody who finally came to recognize how he truly failed will how 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 the stuff that they were doing as superheroes was inconsequential compared to what Will was trying to do with his persona, and that he decided to leave his entire estate to Will. Now we don't know what Will had been doing um, up until this time. Like you said earlier, you mentioned Will. What has he been doing this whole time? We know that he was apparently running a movie theater in Harlem. Yes, which makes me wonder: has he been? Has he been experimenting with the mesmerizer, refining it, making it work better? If he got the inheritance from Captain Metropolis, maybe he's had the resources to do some interesting research on the mesmerizer. And could that have been what got him connected to Lady True? So all of that, again, fits, I think, really well together and makes for essential reading of the PDPedia stuff. And I think this line I wanted to read, um, and you'll read it yourselves, but I thought it's worth saying that this is what PD concludes his memo. Mm-hmm. I've spent countless hours criticizing American Hero Story Minutemen for its historical inaccuracies, but it never occurred to me until this moment that the greatest historical inaccuracy of all might be America itself. Yeah. It's pretty powerful, writers. Pretty powerful stuff. All right. Great job, Roberto. Yeah. All right. We got a long one, but we're going to keep on chugging along. We got four pieces of great feedback. First up is from Mike. Another great episode felt a little bit like when Lost late in season six went back with Across the Sea. Yeah, baby. I love the origin stuff, but now I'm desperate to get back to the main story. Across the sea, however, I don't think delivered in the way this episode delivered. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Roberto, come on. Richard there was Albert. A lot, a lot of disappointment to that episode. I love you know, it. I in actually, the zeitgeist of lost viewers. But you know what? I that, think this episode did not. Uh, I think this episode was much more successful. Yes. Well, I, I, I can't disagree, though. My personal experience was that was the only episode of Lost I ever watched live with Heath Solo. Uh-huh. He came and visited me in North Carolina, and then we did a live podcast. And so I have a special affinity. I wasn't able – it mesmerized me. It glamored me. Well, I think it's different, too, because this is one of nine episodes, whereas that True. was one of 40-some episodes, right? Yeah. So it's one thing to try to resolve the strands that you've left hanging over the course of five or six seasons versus here where it's been a very, very methodically part of this very con- contained story. True, true that. Uh, Mike continues, so events in the show seem to be leading up to the launch of the Millennium Clock. And with the late introduction of Mesmerizing Light and the huge power it has, I wonder if these two are connected. Will 
and Lady True are working on something together. Could it be this? Could the Millennium Clock work alongside this mesmerizing technology, maybe through a popular superhero show on TV that everyone seems to watch, or the HDTVs Lady True gave everyone? Or the satellites around the planet. (laughs) Exactly. In an attempt to control or wake up the population. I have no idea where this is all going to end, but I'm loving the journey. Thank you, Mike. Thank uh, this you, Mike. is I, Mike. I think you're. I mean, I think you're right on point here, brother. I feel the same way. We're learning. You know, we keep on learning like one side and then the other, right? So it's like we learned a bit about Lady Truth. Now we know what Will has to offer because we were wondering before what did Will have to offer Lady True? Why would yeah. she want to work with him? Well, now we know. Not only is he hooded justice, but he has this mesmerizing. I think there's no doubt. I'm moving closer and closer to the idea that with the, it's like a mix of nostalgia mesmerizing and perhaps it will maybe like make all the white people think like they had the memories yeah of a black it, person it, it, or it, a vietnamese it, person and like see what it is like yeah. to be on the other side uh-huh. people like to talk about folks who are you know what and sometimes in derogatory term, they use the term people who are woke, right? Yeah. To talk about people. So this is like the big up wake up machine, <laughs> big waking machine yep. that uh, that she's building. Well, hey, when it go tick tock, tick tock, woke yep. up, <laughs> wake up, big alarm clock. Woke. Yeah. So I, Mike, great, you put it succinctly, and yeah, that feeling uh, too. I I liked. This episode, I have been talking about how I thought that this episode would mirror the Dr. Manhattan um, origin story, and it does, because mm-hmm. in that in that story, we find out the crux of the Watchmen, which is the attempted rape, and then later, um, I, I'm not sure if they got – well, they did. They got married yeah. um, of Comedian and, and Silk Spectre 1. That now we find out about Will, but we also see the origin of this mesmerizing, and so I think that this is a really important episode, and I just thought it was great. Yeah, and if you know, maybe in a way, True learned from Vite that if you if you try to unite people through fear, it might work temporarily, but eventually, there's still stuff that needs to be dealt with. Maybe True is trying to unite people through truth through exactly through other means so yeah yeah yeah, they they are not subtle with a lot of these names right right looking glass that's right lady true that's right lady true yep lady true gonna show them the truth yeah uh we got another one from ben Hello, guys. Thank you for reading a past theory of mine and being kind. It was pretty wild to hear my name and words while listening. I let out a yelp at work and got some strange looks. <laughs> That's happened to me too, Ben. Um, I had a thought. This show really does get the theory juices flowing. I think Looking Glass is deliberately made to make us compare him to Rorschach. But I think it's a misdirection. In the original comic, Rorschach is the guy who investigates the murder, sneaks in and finds the costume of Ed Blake. He's the guy who sees the world in black and white and is unflinching. He gets set up and becomes the enemy of the police. Blah, blah, blah. Now, in the current series, the character that has done every one of these same things isn't looking glass. It's Sister Knight. She even declares to her adopted son, we know the world is black and white. It makes me scared that she's a goner by the end of the show. That is really interesting that yeah. in in fact, Sister Knight is being set up. 
And you know what? It that this is a great point because she is our hero, right? We we are attaching ourselves to her. Mm-hmm. But as we've seen, we she's yet to make that choice as so many heroes do, right? Yeah. Um, she kind of thinks Judd she sees the thing, she she hides, she she's doing her investigations, but we don't she has not yet been challenged in that way and perhaps similarly to Rorschach She'll have a, a, you know, she'll die or have a bad right, fate, right. and then her, or, or she, that she will be the one burdened with hiding the truth. Yes, Warshark couldn't what do I was that. Say, yeah. right, right. Yeah, and then it'll, it'll, it's, it's kind of like a play on the choices she makes, mm-hmm. and I think that that's pretty deep. And you know what? I'm in for it. I, I think that that would be pretty cool to challenge this main character. Um, because that's what this show is doing with all our characters. Look at this story we see of Hooded Justice. We can't come to the end of that story and think that he's a great hero. Right. You know, there's many right. decisions he made that are not – we don't agree with. Right. So right. we've got to see his, what decision. his own wife. His own wife did not agree with. Exactly. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that was – oh, we didn't mention that was so powerful, the part when he sees his son putting on the white putting face. Putting on the mask. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was crazy. Yeah. Um, uh, ben continues, side thing that's been on my mind since the road with the Kent egg farm baby being given over, a baby described as biologically theirs, doesn't that open up the idea that Lady True, if she was honest, can make people that would be genetically related? Could that mean that Will may not be the original Will? So maybe the original Hooded Justice died and he's hmm. not a hundred and something years old. Yeah. And she yeah. created a clone of him. He could he could be his first test subject for what he's doing with his mom, bringing her in back through Bane, mm. through, through Beyond May. That's interesting. Now, I got to mm. think a little bit more about what that would – like thematically, what yeah. that kind of means. Yeah. And whether or not, in a sense, Lady True is – like she found out the truth about Will – and she brought him back as a symbol of representation, as a symbol further of the lies that had yeah. been told. Yeah. Uh, that I find to be interesting. But then for her to allow him to contact Angela and act freely is also very interesting as well. Yeah. And says something about her, you know, j- because the relationship she had with her daughter, uh, daughter, clone, mother, whatever. Um, it did seem like she wanted her to grow, you right. know, she wasn't trying to punish her with these experiences. She wanted her to grow. Yeah. Well, and if it is, if it is supposed to be, you know, if, if, if we're following the line of thought that she could be recreating her mother, then maybe she could have recreated Will. She's yeah. got these nostalgia pills. Maybe where did those memories come from? Could she have used the same technology and fed those memories into her new creation? I love it. Ben, yeah. you're going to yelp at work again, buddy. Yeah. Good job. Thank you. <laughs> By the way, I want to go back to one of Ben's points. Just Ben brought up Rorschach and, and Looking Glass. Another piece that I forgot to mention on the Blake memo in PDpedia is that uh, early on in the, in the memo, she discusses uh, tracking down uh, 
Gartner's paperwork, the the paperwork that PD is talking about in his memo about the about the will and testament that was left for Will. And she says, "Get over to Mirror Guy's house and bring him in." And I'm, so she's she's saying, you know, oh, we need to get. Okay. And I'm wondering, at the end of the previous episode of episode five, we saw the cavalry arriving at uh, at uh, uh, Looking Glass's house. And the, the the implication there is that they're coming to kill him. Like maybe he's already done his part by by uh, framing uh, 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 Angela, and they are now you know gonna gonna take him down. But I'm wondering if they got word that the cops are coming to get him, and those cavalry members are now coming to stop that from happening. Or we're getting a we're getting the old change up, and the cops already got him. Maybe. And they bust into the house and nobody's there. Or, Maybe. But I like uh, – yeah, I'm just I, – But I just, I just thought that writing because we didn't see anything of, <laughs> of, of him this episode and they left us with that cliffhanger. They do mention that thing. Get over there and bring him in. Yeah. So I'm wondering if this has something to do with the cavalry showing up there. Yeah. That's yeah. very cool, man. I like it. Ben, all right. Good one. All, all right. right. Now we got Thank something you, new. So Rob writes, hey, guys, I'm really enjoying the podcast. Keep up the good work. I wanted to point out something that I found uh, some time ago that really stuck in my head. Musician Sturgill Simpson did an interview some years ago. And at one point, he made a comment about going on Mars and building glass clocks, which I took as an obvious Watchmen reference. I think it's no coincidence that his music was in the last episode. I haven't seen proof of it, but I suspect he's a huge fan of Watchmen. Wow, that's a great catch. Do you know what is the the, the song that was played in this episode by him? Um, I don't remember, but I know okay. that Aaron knows because Aaron is a big Sturgill Simpson fan. He's seen him live a bunch of times. And as okay. I mentioned, there is a Netflix anime of some of the songs off his last album. And Sturgill Simpson is like a psychedelic space cowboy okay and his music is very influenced by sci-fi comics films um and it's really awesome i like it a lot aaron turn aaron who's really actually probably knows more about like modern music than anyone i know uh is really into him so i thought this was a great email and um maybe i'll ask aaron about this on next week's episode and we'll talk about it too rob yeah that would be interesting because it'd be it'd be cool to find out what music it was that was used um it looks like the name of the song in the soundtrack by him is called turtles all the way down yes is the name of the song and that makes reference to the old mythology of like you know the earth being on the shell of the turtle yeah, that plays into Stephen yeah. King stuff and all sorts of crazy stuff. Oh, so. yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's also yeah. Stephen King picked up on that. That's right. Man, that is – yeah. you know, it's so interesting. I I was – this is a totally off-the-cuff uh, off thing, but I was just – I was reading up on Scientology and the really interesting layers of the like bear personality and like it, it gets all into that too. And there is something to be mined there. Maybe maybe Damon can like do Dianetics uh-huh. or like the Scientology series or something. I know that's controversial, but when you get into when you have a religion uh, or a belief practice that was written by a science fiction author, it it really gets interesting, man. Yeah. Go onto Wikipedia and just look up because now since there's been kind of an outing of Scientology and their beliefs. 
you can go on Wikipedia and you can read it all now. And it's really interesting stuff. And it's like this turtle stuff and like the, the mixture of mythology of like kind of like ancient mythologies with sci-fi. And it's really fascinating. And I think Sturgill Simpson has a similar approach to kind of almost like this Lovecraftian blend of fantasy and science fiction and religion and occult. And it's really, really fascinating. Wow. So quick Wikipedia search on Turtles All the Way Down. <laughs> turtles All the Way Down, is this is from Wikipedia, is an expression of the problem of infinite regress. The saying alludes to the mythological idea of the world turtle that supports the earth on its back. It suggests that this turtle rests on the back of an even larger tur- turtle, which itself is part of a column of increasingly large turtles that continues indefinitely and it's also known and when it comes to the song uh turtles all the way down it says that that it it is in reference to turtles all the way down a lighthearted term for the concept of uh, anavasta from indian philosophy which states that that there is no underlying basis or ground for existence so chew on that while you think (laughs) 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 what it means for the episode uh, Misha, I think it's Misha or Mesha. I can't, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing, pronouncing your name correctly, but uh, uh, thank you for your feedback here. And you, yeah, Misha, provided some uh, really important insights for this episode. Uh, I have listened to every episode, and the deep dive is a thrill. There are things that are missed in the analysis because of cultural and perhaps historical blind spots. A few examples. Sister Knight's name was opined to be related to a type of nunnery. But the moniker of sister is an African-American colloquialism, which simply means African-American female. So if I said she's a sister, I'm simply saying that she's black like me. Thus, unlike Hooded Justice, her identity is more in the foreground. Great point. And a lot of people have also mentioned that her costume, even though it seems to be inspired, you know, she has the beads, which kind of speaks to maybe being tied to religious themes, but also to be inspired by Black Panthers, uh, the Black Panther movement, uh, which, of course, was about bringing Black brothers and sisters together uh, to advocate for social justice. Uh, The first hooded justice in the show was Bass Reeves. He was a person... Uh, he, he was a real person who was the inspiration for the Lone Ranger, who is white in cinema and comics. Likewise, Hooded Justice is also a black man being portrayed as white in cinema and comics. Um, I think another valid point, and it, it, it speaks to also the whitewashing of black influence and black culture and society. I mean, you don't have to look too far. Uh, I remember um, reading about just, the, for example, the history of rock and roll. And how much of the of the rhythm and the music of rock and roll was born out of African American uh, musical tradition, and yet the people who ended up benefiting most and picking up on the legacy of rock and roll were the white folks who would whitewash those uh, uh, lyrics, whitewash those uh, th- that uh, that uh, uh, type of of music, and turned it into well, basically what is globally kind of perceived to be more of a white genre. Um, I remember seeing an interview once with little Richard about his disgust with the way Pat Boone pretty much stole the song Tutti Frutti from him. Uh, And it was all in that context of, you know, how much of black history and the impact in things like rock and roll uh, has been whitewashed. And uh, similarly, it's kind of a theme that recurs here with the idea of the superhero. 
Uh, further, the first hooded justice in American history was the Klan. The hood and tactics used were to strike terror to maintain order. Order is defined as white supremacy order. Every weapon that was used to terrorize Will's community, he turns it on, he turns it on white supremacy. This is probably the first time that he did not feel completely helpless. But historically, the Klan was only one way America reinforces white supremacy. The formula is terrorism, the law, finances, and education. I think it's interesting that there is a single eye on the dollar bill. Yep. An economically empowered group threatens the other. I notice that a bank was the first to use the Minutemen's image. By joining the Minutemen, as someone said, he is indirectly reinforcing the racial order. Is Angela's character doing the same? Was she hugging her oppressor? That's it. See, that's that's awesome. Thank and you. And there actually that. is a literal scene when she's bringing down uh, Judd's body, and she is hugging yep. Judd uh, as she's coming down. He's coming down from the tree, and that's the kind of thing. That's exactly what got me thinking about. And like I said, when I read these, and it informs what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, about Angela's choice, and look, it's mm -hmm. like we started in the beginning. She's a cop. Yeah, you know, and and look at what they're doing when they're torturing the people in the warehouse, yes, and the way they're acting, and look what she's a part of in that sense. And she, again, she was the one who didn't want to take out the weapons and try to take out the 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 cavalry once and for all. You know right. what I mean? Um, I I think that it's it's really it's an interesting point, and I think that. We've yet to see really, we got to get deeper into Angela's character mm -hmm. and see what choices she's going to make. And everything that Misha said here about the clan being the hooded justice order, um, the, with the uh, terrorism, the law, finances, education, we see that Tulsa massacre was an attack on Black Wall Street. It was an attack on affluent african-americans building a um a town right yep. and a system of empowering others right right if they own the bank you can get a loan mm -hmm. you know and it, it it buys into originally in the first episode when we meet angela and she's cracking the eggs and then the kid says did you get the money for your bakery from your refredations mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. well where was she going to get the money from previous to that little right. white boy? You know, like right. you destroyed the banks, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that this is great stuff. Uh, so she continues having a dual identity for the hooded for hooded justice was a torment and it was emancipating. Think about people who could pass as white. Their discovery was certain death and loss of privileges. You're never at peace. Mm, the compromise. Yeah. And, you know, I have not that I would ever equate my experience to the experience of African-Americans, but as a white, blonde, blue eyed Puerto Rican, I have had some really interesting encounters with people who assumed that I uh, maybe side with them and how they feel about mm -hmm. situations related to Hispanic culture or to Puerto Rican culture or Latin American culture. Um, and so it's been interesting for me who very easily passes for, you know, quote unquote white um, to be, to find myself in situ in awkward situations because of people kind of assuming that I'm going to uh, be sympathetic to their views 
um, simply because of the way that I look. Yeah, it's interesting the way she says, uh, but also includes it was emancipating as Mm -hmm. well, right? It gave him this freedom. Sure. And with that freedom, though, there's a price, but there's also an intoxication, a mesmerization Mm -hmm. of the power and of uh, wanting to be seen. And just in the way that Captain Metropolis made love to him, right? And and, and was uh, tender to him in bed. This is something that will desired his whole life to feel that freedom with another right. man like that. And to, but then to have it used against him, um, is the cost, right? The hood of black justice didn't just protect him. His hood mostly protected his people as the 1921 massacre in Tulsa was a result of armed black men, making sure another man wasn't lynched. The burning of the town was reprisal. He had more than his welfare to consider. So mm. we, that kind of touches upon some of the stuff we also talked Good about point. the identity uh, that it was hiding. It wasn't just him. It was his entire, pe- the entire people. And I think that's why originally you see the person who put the makeup on him first was his wife. Yes. Yeah. She, I mean, she recognizes that the yeah. only way for him for this to work is to pass for white. The use of the one eight squid to keep the world under the control of world leaders or at least American leaders the one a squid represents the fear of the other. That other is currently radical Muslims, but has historically been black people. Movies like The Birth of a Nation, books on eugenics, laws passed from 1681 to criminal justice laws, newspaper articles and entertainment all contributed to the creation of the psychic blast through the country with its tentacles extending into every aspect of society. Race is a human construct to those who are diverse but economically aligned from joining together to demand more of those with wealth and unseat others with power. That's great stuff. Yeah. And uh, I think that's an incredibly important revelation here. And and this last statement speaks to what we were talking about, that uncomfort from those in power, right? That it demands that those in wealth be unseated, that those who have more give up of what they have in order to create a more equitable society. Yeah. And and we too in our own um in our own you know normal everyday interactions with other human beings. Yeah. Right? It, it challenges us to do that as well in those interactions and in our own discussions and thought processes. And I love the way that she blends again they did it again with the perfect retcon, right? Yes. The psychic blast throughout the country with its tentacles extending into every aspect of society. That squid is that, right? Yeah. And it's such a metaphor, and that was brilliant. Thank you and for writing in. No, no coincidence that the eye resonates across all of these yep. things that have to do with oppression and information and power, right? That the, the cyclops is the squid. It is the Seventh Cavalry. It is white supremacy. It's all tied into that. Yeah. And it makes me even think more and more that the Millennium Clock is a great big mesmerat. You know what I mean? Reversing big, that in a the sense. Great big, uh, uh, alarm clock for the world. Yep. Wake up. Yep. Remember that old, uh, that old, the terrible guy who used to, Howard Stern used to make fun of him. Wake up, white people. <laughs> Remember that? And this I, is know, like, I wasn't much of a Stern listener. so I Back in the day when he yeah. was on the regular uh, air, I was. And uh, 
when I was younger, I would at least, you know, I grew up in Jersey. So uh-huh. everyone in New York and New Jersey, you'd hear it on the air going to school or the bus driver. But there, he used to make fun of this Klansman. Uh, this guy would call in to Howard Stern and then Howard Stern would call his like – his recording line and then he'd ha- he'd leave messages and then he'd have like Robin leave messages uh-huh. um, and they would basically just goof on this guy. But I hear that in my mind, when I'm like, but it's in reverse now, you know, like I feel like that's what they're going to do. They're going to hit that button and be like, wake up white people. Yeah. And they're going to wake up and feel and, and see the truth. Cause it's like, like, like I said, we talked a little bit before um, when you, when as a person and look, I'm a white guy, grew up in New Jersey. I'm six foot four redhead. People think people have seen me as an authority figure. And once I became an adult, most often people would miss, uh, think that I was a police officer, right? I don't know why right. I carry myself. I guess you're Irish guy in Jersey, right, New York, right, you right. think you're a cop, but, um, when you are faced with these historical truths and these um, and these uh, these events and, and the way people, the way history has been changed, you you have a choice to accept it, become interested in it, and and open yourself to it, or you have a choice to push it away and and get and get more angry or fearful or xenophobic. Um, you know, and I think that this show is great in the way that it examines the effect, the psychic, that psychic blast hurts white people too. You know what I'm saying? Like, right. it's not good to be racist. It's not good to be no. hateful. It's not good for your heart, your soul, your physical being. That, 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 uh, rage consumes you no yes. matter what we saw it consuming will we see, and it consumes you. If you keep holding on to that rage and to that, to that, uh, to those feelings and, 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 and the belief in these false histories hurts you too. So it's not like the truth. It's not like the truth self, the truth will set you free or people are only looking for the emancipation of black people in America right? It's the emancipation of all people, of all people being able to see the truth. And also for white people to not be in, this is a burden as well, right? It's a burden that we all share, though the power may be unequal. We are all in a sense together in the best way to be equal, right? It does. It's not, I've always seen it in my way. I've seen it as a, uh, an opening of myself and an understanding, not as me taking on guilt or, or, uh, shame or anything of that nature. It's more so me taking on the truth and feeling happier to live among my fellow human beings. That's right. Well, that's just me, but, um, all right, let's talk a little bit about the preview. Cause that looked awesome. It does. I'm, so I'm really looking forward to that crazy court <laughs> with Vite. Yeah, what <laughs> and if, is going? And if our theory from last week holds, I can just imagine that just as he's sentenced to death or something, some some lady true spaceship is going to yeah. arrive and he's going to have to run for it <laughs> to escape from the crazy uh, the crazy clones who are about to uh, to take care of him. Yeah, that whole so we get a we get a court scene with Vite, and that was by the way was great editing. 
I don't know if it's just edited, if it's going to be in the show or just a trailer, but it's like Angela seems to be, this episode seems to be Angela kind of caught in Lady Vite's. Um, Lady Trues. Lady, I'm sorry, Lady Trues. Well, uh, I, I I think there's still more to be disclosed because we're gonna yeah. we're gonna learn about we just learned about Will's past. It looks like with Lady True, we're gonna learn about Angela's past. Yes, that's and what. Given, I'm, yeah, given that she was born and raised in Vietnam, maybe there are some deeper connections to Lady True that she's not aware of. Yeah, and Cal too, because it looks yeah. like we see a younger Cal. That's we're right. gonna get a backstory on Angela, and then it's like she. She's like running through a maze of the millennium clock or of, uh, of true industries. And she's having all these interactions and then she opens a door and she's like, Oh, she's kind of like surprised to see right. something, but there's right. a great fade from like it, the camera moves up and it's like two are like into Angela's eyes. And then it fades into the ceiling of where they're having the trial. Right. And I was like, man, this show just doesn't stop. But what's going that the Angela stuff I got, I can see what we're gonna get backstory. I'm I'm in for it. I'm I'm getting more confused about the purpose of a trial for Vite, and if it's really about again, I can't shake the feeling that that might be a flash forward, and that this trial may be more about what happens here than what happened in the comic. Yeah, I, I just think it's almost gotten to the point of absurdism. These these yeah, clones yeah. are op- operating, you know, semi, semi-self-conscious. They're these constructs that maybe were part of a failed experiment, either with True or with Dr. Manhattan. And he's just trapped. It's like he's trapped in the in this loony bin, basically. Yes. And he's just, you know, <laughs> weird, trying dude. to get out. <laughs> and I wouldn't be surprised if it was just some experiment that he started with Manhattan and Manhattan just forgot about him. He just kind of took off and he's been stuck here ever since. Uh, so we'll see. I, I, I think we're going to have a, a, a true Vite reunion coming up soon. I hope so, because... I love this stuff. I love Jeremy Irons. I love the weird cyberpunk um, space outfits. I yeah, love uh, everything about it. But more like steampunk. Steampunk. Yes, yeah, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. Steampunk. You're right. Yeah. But I want there to be the same resonance of theme. Yeah. For that, that we're finding in the rest of the show, mm-hmm. and I hope that that's what the payoff is, in some way, that it is is white representational of this system, right? Of these white guys that we're seeing throughout the show who think they know better. They should sacrifice millions because they know how to save the world, right? Yeah. Um, I want to see what if if that's what this trial is about because I'm looking for that thematic resonance in this side of the story that I'm not disappointed with it, but I'm not getting that, you know? So right. we'll see. Right. Yeah, yeah. All right, that brings us our longest episode. But so far, I mean, man, this was a lot of great stuff. Uh, Once again, thank you, Misha. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Ben. And thank you, Mike. Uh, Thanks, James, for sending in uh, that article. Um, We appreciate all the downloads, all the listeners, and the feedback. It's been a great journey. We got, what, three more episodes this weekend on the... Uh, initial reaction, I'm going to have Andy come on. We're going to have a great time doing that. Then on Wednesday, back with Aaron, Roberto, 
then episode eight, Dan from Tower of Babel. And I still don't have a guest host for the initial reaction for the finale. So if anybody out there has some suggestions, please send them in. Or if you're a person and you want to come on, you know, reach out to me. I, I'll definitely be able to find someone, but I always like to kind of leave it open to see what kind of what maybe something interesting will happen. Yeah, you know? sounds great. Throw it open. So any final words, Roberto? I'm good. I think we've talked enough this week. <laughs> uh, thanks again to everybody for listening in and chiming in with your own thoughts and reflections. It really helps enrich my own uh, appreciation for the show and my own understanding of what's going on. So thank you so much. Yes. Thank you, everyone. Peace out. Peace out.